0: Was Jesus happy? Was Jesus happy? The Bible calls him the, the man of sorrows in the book of Isaiah. Most depictions of Jesus, whether it's paintings or cinema, often depict Christ as somewhat dour and very serious. Was he happy? I remember in 1999, watching a CBS miniseries that told the story of Jesus. And I still remember a scene that depicted him entering into some courtyard with his disciples, and there was some sort of a well or something or fountain in the middle of the courtyard, and he reaches in, and he splashes some of his disciples and starts like a a splash water fight while they're laughing. And I remember the conversations I heard after watching that were about how Jesus would have been a lot more serious than that. Now, we can say for certain there are no water splash fight scenes in the Gospels. But can we say anything about Jesus being happy? You know, we, we, we say Jesus had joy but he's not supposed to be happy, is he? I think this sort of sneering at the idea of happiness and and maybe a happy Jesus is actually pretty commonplace in American evangelical Christianity. Since I was a boy, I've heard Christians say that there's a, a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness, it's been said, I remember hearing since I was a teenager, even younger. Happiness is based on what happens. Joy, on the other hand, transcends circumstances. It's not related to what happens. Happiness is an emotion, I remember hearing. But joy is a choice. Happiness is trivial. Joy is profound. Happiness is for the world. Joy is for the Christian. That's what I've heard as long as I can remember. And perhaps you've heard similar things as you've heard the Bible taught through the years. I would suggest there's two major problems with that distinction between happiness and joy. One problem is that we are, it seems, hardwired for happiness. I, I asked my Children, this morning, as we were preparing to come here, if Jesus was ever happy, and my my daughter said, yes, we know that he was happy because he was a human. Humans are sometimes happy. Not all the time, of course, but sometimes happy. We're we're hardwired for this. This is kind of built in to us. Uh, Augustine said, every man, whatever his condition, desires to be happy. Or Pascal said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object being happiness. And then he says, this is the motive of every action, of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Pascal is saying that we're hardwired for happiness. Why do you do what you do? Because it makes you happy, or at least you hope so. That's one problem with the distinction between happiness and joy. Here's another problem, the bigger problem. It's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. We're going to be in Habakkuk this morning, but if you'd like, I want to just show this to you real quickly in Isaiah chapter 52. You can turn there if you'd like, or just listen. Jot down the verses 7 and 8. Isaiah 52, verses 7 and 8. This is a passage that's quite similar to something we heard in Nahum last week. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says the Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see. Do you notice in Isaiah 52, Isaiah the prophet connects happiness and joy. He even says the good news that Christians eventually will proclaim is the good news of happiness. This is a happy gospel. So the Bible doesn't seem to split happiness and joy as if they're separate things. One's for the world, one's for the Christian. And all throughout church history, no Christian would have distinguished between happiness and joy until about 100 years ago. It's actually a pretty recent thing. So the Puritan preacher Thomas Brooks said that God is the author of all true happiness. Or John Wesley said, said, when we first know Christ, then it is that, not joy, happiness begins. Charles Spurgeon, may your Christian life be fraught with happiness and overflowing with joy. George Whitfield, it is the end of religion to make men happy, and it is not everyone's privilege to be as happy as he can. C.S. Lewis, it is a Christian duty, as you know, for everyone to be as happy as he can. John Piper, I think, summarizes it well. He says, call it what you will. Joy, satisfaction, contentment. It doesn't matter. They're all in the Bible. The Bible is indiscriminate in its pleasure language. If you have nice little categories for joy is what Christians have and happiness is what the world has, you can scrap these when you go to the Bible because the Bible is indiscriminate in its use of the language of happiness and joy and contentment and satisfaction. It is lavish in all of them and none of them is chosen above the other. Happiness and joy aren't separate things, you say. So here's the question I want us to ask this morning. How can I be truly happy? How can I be truly happy? And I think we'll find an answer to that question in the book of Habakkuk. So if you're not there, go to Habakkuk chapter 1. We're not exactly sure when Habakkuk prophesied, but it was probably around 609 B.C., About 100 years earlier, the the northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians in 722, but the southern kingdom still remained. Remember, Israel was split into north and south after the reign of Solomon. So the southern kingdom remains much longer than the north. Part of the reason for that is because of the legacy of King David and the fact that there were godly kings occasionally on the throne in the southern kingdom of Judah including uh, perhaps one of their greatest kings, King Josiah, who reigned from 640 to 609 BC. Uh, Josiah led God's people to a season of revival and renewal that they hadn't experienced in 300 years. Perhaps there were Make Judah Great Again posters throughout Judah as King Josiah reigned. And then he died and his son Jehoiakim did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And very quickly after Josiah's death, all of the revivals that came during his reign were completely forgotten. And evil once again rules the day and the southern kingdom. And in that context, Habakkuk writes this prophecy. It's really not so much a prophecy as it is a conversation between God himself and Habakkuk. And in that conversation, we find an answer to our question for today, how can I be truly happy? I want to suggest to you the answer to that question is that the highway of happiness is trusting God. You want to be happy? You want to be truly happy? Trust God. I I think that's the, the, the message of the book of Habakkuk, Because if you look at the end of the book, you kind of see that's where he's going. This is what my wife loves to do. Anytime we watch a new movie or a TV show, she Googles the ending. And once she knows the ending, then she can make sense of the rest of it. So let's do that together. Even though I I would never do that with a TV show, let's do it with Habakkuk. So go to Habakkuk 3. I already told you one. Go to 3 and look at verse 18. The book is like this big journey, a conversational journey with God and Habakkuk. And at the end of the journey, at the end of the highway, he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. He's saying, I am happy in God. That's the end. How does he get there? By trusting God at three critical junctures along the way. We know that trust is central because the most popular verse in Habakkuk is Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. It's quoted three times in the New Testament and it says the righteous shall live by faith. So, so the pathway, the highway to happiness is a highway of trusting in God. And I want to suggest to you from the book of Habakkuk there are three truths about God that we are called to trust in if we want to find on the other side true And lasting happiness. Number one, trust that God is good. Now go to Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? destruction, and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. So here's how the story begins. It begins with a lamentation. Habakkuk is looking at the world around him. He's looking at Judah, the southern kingdom, and he sees violence, he sees wickedness, he sees iniquity. It looks like the law of God is paralyzed. It's not having any effect in the hearts of God's people. And he's saying, why God? Don't you care? What are you doing? What's going on? Why aren't you stopping all of this evil? You can almost hear underneath Habakkuk's questions, the implicit question, is God really good? Is God really good? I wonder if you ever look at the world around you and you ask the same question. Abortion, racism, sexual abuse, murder, injustice, religious persecution, persecution. Listen, you just got to watch the news for about five minutes and you get all of those and more. You ever look at all of that, listen to all of that and wonder, how long, Lord, why? What are you doing? Why are you allowing this to happen? Or perhaps you don't watch the news for that very reason. Perhaps for you, The real trial is is those in your face, kind of up close and personal challenges and difficulties that you face. All the pain, the personal pain that you endure emotionally. Maybe you're in this room and, and you have a perennial challenge, a battle against anxiety or depression. And you wonder, how long, oh Lord, are you going to let me go through this? Or maybe it's physical pain. Maybe you're in this room and even now you're you're wrestling with chronic pain of some sort. Or or there's a diagnosis looming over your head and you don't know what it means for you yet. And you're wondering, how long, oh Lord, what are you doing? Why are you putting me through this? Or maybe it's relational pain. Maybe it's a broken relationship. Maybe it's a, a marriage that's crumbling. Maybe it's children that want nothing to do with you. And and you're wondering, Lord, how long is this going to happen? Or maybe it's spiritual pain. Maybe it's temptations that seem to always get the better of you. Maybe it's a lack of assurance and you're constantly wondering, am I really a Christian? Here's the question I want to ask you this morning. Where do you turn when you feel this way? Where do you go? If you're honest with yourself, every single person in this room, at some point or another, you go through some sort of pain and you're tempted to ask, is God good? Where do you go with those questions? I remember years ago having a conversation with a young man who was wrestling with those very questions and where he chose to go was YouTube. Let me just tell you something. You can find an argument for anything you want on YouTube. I tell you something? There's a better place to turn. Better place to turn. Where does Habakkuk turn when he's feeling this way? He turns to God. It's easy to look at Habakkuk here at the beginning of the book and say, this man has, has lost his faith, but he hasn't, because what's he doing? He's praying. He's asking these questions of God himself. This is not an example of weak faith, but strong faith. Faith that says, I do not understand, but I will still get on my knees and cry out to God and ask him, what in the world are you doing? Christian, when your faith is shaky, take it to Jesus. Take it to Jesus. Now, God as we'll see in just a moment, answers Habakkuk's prayer. But before we look at God's answer, perhaps you're feeling a bit jealous. Why doesn't God answer me? I want a voice like Habakkuk got because I'm going through this. Can he see this? Why don't I get that? Remember, Habakkuk did not have the complete word of God. Habakkuk is a man living before the entire New Testament. He does not have all of God's complete revelation for us. We have that. So listen to what Peter lovingly writes to us in Second Peter chapter 1. God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Do you notice we have been given all things that pertain to life and and godliness everything you need to live a godly life is given to you in god's word god may never in this life answer the questions that you might bring to him habakkuk gets some answers but before you are too envious of him just listen because sometimes the answers don't make things better sometimes Getting the answers actually makes things worse. So look at chapter 1, verse 5. God responds to Habakkuk. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. You have to wonder if Habakkuk is like, yes, this is going to be amazing. God's going to do something so amazing and awesome. I wouldn't believe it if you told me. It's unbelievable. And then God tells him what it is. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. the nickname for the Babylonians. That bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Babylon was a nation not too far from the southern kingdom. And we learned last week about the Assyrians they were the world's superpower during the time of Nahum but at, at this point now they're falling apart Nineveh's uh, been destroyed the Assyrian empire is about to completely crumble and a new world superpower will rise in their place guess who it is Babylon Babylon here's what God is saying to Habakkuk Habakkuk you're wondering why I'm not doing anything? Guess what? I am doing something. I'm going to send the Babylonians to destroy the southern kingdom. Now this would be like you today getting on your knees before God, looking at all the wickedness in our nation and saying, how long, oh Lord, until you deal with this? And God says, it's okay. I'm sending China. Next week, they're going to obliterate the U.S. And you're like, what? What? I was looking for some help, Lord. And so right away, we see a second thing that we have to trust, a second truth about God that we must trust in, not only that he is good, but that he is wise. We must trust that God is wise. About 23 years after Habakkuk is prophesying, the Babylonians will come in and they will utterly wipe out the city of Jerusalem they will exile tons of the southern kingdom citizens men like Daniel Shadrach Meshach Abednego we know those stories they're exiled when the Babylonians come in and wipe out the southern kingdom Habakkuk most likely is going to live to see what happens so so God has this plan he's good he's doing something but Habakkuk does not understand what God is doing. Wait a minute, God, have you made a mistake? And like God says to you, I'm sending China, and you say, wait, hold up. Hold up. So Habakkuk prays to God again in verse 12 of chapter 1. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my holy one? We shall not die. Oh Lord, you have ordained them. He's talking about Babylon as a judgment. And, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Here's what Habakkuk is saying. Wait a minute, God, you're holy. We sang about that earlier, right? God, a holy God. You're a holy God. The Babylonians are worse Uh, Judah's bad, but hold up a minute here. You're going to send a worse nation to judge a more righteous nation? Really? God, your eyes are so pure, you can't look at evil. Why are you allowing this? I don't understand. So here's a question for us to ask ourselves this morning. How in the world are we supposed to be happy when God's plans seem so strange when they don't make sense C.S. Lewis put it this way in his book The Problem of Pain he said if God were good he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy and if God were almighty he would be able to do what he wished but the creatures are not happy therefore God either lacks goodness or power or both. This is the problem of pain in its simplest form. If God is all powerful, then He can stop your unhappiness. If He is all good, then He would desire to stop your unhappiness. And yet, your unhappiness persists, your confusion lingers. Your pain continues. So how can God be both all-powerful and all-good? That's the question. Can I suggest to you that one way to respond to that is by adding to the equation that God is not only all-powerful and all-good, but all-wise. He is all-wise. He has a perspective and a plan that we just do not understand. We cannot fully understand it. Now, now we can get the big picture, but I'm talking about the nuances, the painful crevices in your life. Why has God not taken away this? Why did God allow that? You do not, cannot understand all the ins and outs of what God is doing there, brother, sister, friend. Do you believe that he is not only all good and all powerful, but all wise, that he sees the big picture, that he has a plan bigger and better than anything that you could imagine? Maybe you're in the room and you say, well, I just can't accept that. You know, it's interesting. We accept that in our popular stories, but we struggle accepting it in real life. Consider, for example, Harry Potter and Dumbledore. Dumbledore. If you read through the books for the first time, Dumbledore's decisions do not make sense. Why won't he look Harry in the eye in book five? Why does he make these random overnight trips to find weird objects in book six? Why does he trust Snape? Why does he tell Snape to do what he does at the end of book six? I won't spoil it for you. Book five is painful because... Harry gets so angry at Dumbledore, and it appears that Dumbledore has zero control over what is happening. Yet, it's Dumbledore, not Harry, who has complete control over the situation. Now, we can make sense of a story like that because we understand that Dumbledore has something that Harry didn't. He had perspective, he had wisdom, he had insight. Why is it that we can make sense of that in our stories and our entertainment but we refuse to believe it in real life? Is it possible, dear brother, sister, friend, That God, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your confusion, in the midst of your uncertainty, is actually weaving a masterful, beautiful tapestry that is so glorious. When you see the end and look back on it, you would have chosen the exact same thing. Because there's no way you could have ever done it better. Just this past week, our fellowship group was meeting and uh, we were discussing the... The book of Nahum, uh, every week, where, you know, our fellowship groups are discussing the sermon from Sunday. And um, we're, as we're talking about Nahum, um, my wife brought up something that just didn't hit me as I was studying this book. Isn't it interesting, she said, that God chose Nahum, not Jonah, to write the book of Nahum. I think I would ever say, if you were here last week, if you weren't, go online, listen to the sermon. But the book of Nahum is all about God destroying Nineveh. Guess who wanted God to destroy Nineveh? Jonah. Jonah would have loved to write that book. If if there was like a, 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 you know, God kind of choosing in heaven, who's going to write which book? And okay, I've got a book about Nineveh being destroyed. Jonah would be like, me, I want that one. Jonah would have loved to write that book. He wanted to see God destroy Nineveh, but he doesn't see it. He doesn't. Why? Because God is wise. Because God does not want Jonah to get pleasure in the downfall of the wicked. God wants Jonah to have pleasure in him. Do you believe that God is wise? Charles Spurgeon reportedly once said that God is too good to be unkind, too wise to be mistaken. And when you cannot trace his hand, you can trust his heart. Do you believe that, brother, sister, friend? Here's a question for you this morning. There is coming a day, if you if you belong to Christ, there is coming a day when you see the full picture and it starts to make sense. Are you willing to wait until that day? Habakkuk is a good example for us in this. Look at Habakkuk chapter two, verse one. After bringing his second complaint to the Lord, he says, I will take my stand at my watchpost, and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. He says, I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna, like a watchman waiting for the morning, I'm gonna wait and see what God says. Are you willing to do the same? When life doesn't make sense, there's things you don't understand. Are you willing to trust that he is wise and wait? Now, once again, God responds to Habakkuk. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets. Young people, that's not uh, one of these things, by the way. That's an ancient device that you would write on, a tablet. So he may run, I thought that was funny, that's a dad joke for you. (coughs) It wasn't in my notes either. It just came to me. It's amazing how this stuff happens. Um, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision waits, its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God says to Habakkuk, "I'm going to take care of it, Habakkuk, but you're going to have to wait." You're not going to see Babylon fall. But guess what? I'm going to deal with them too. Yes, I'm sending Babylon to destroy the southern kingdom, but I'm not going to let Babylon get away with it. He tells us what awaits Babylon in chapter 2, verses 6 to 20. God lists five woes against the, city, against the people of Babylon. Uh, chapter 2, verse 6. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. Babylonians are thieves God says eventually Babylon is going to get plundered chapter 2 verse 9 the second woe it says woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm the Babylonians feel self-sufficient and safe much like the Assyrians last week but God says eventually they're going to be destroyed chapter 2 verse 12 the third woe Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. The Babylonians, they're violent, they're unjust. Eventually, they're gonna be destroyed by fire. And in that day alone, God alone will get the glory. The glory of the Lord will, will fill the earth as waters cover the sea. Chapter two, verse 12, the fourth woe. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. The Babylonians used people to satisfy their own pleasures. They were pursuing happiness too, weren't they? But a happiness that was at the expense of other people. And God says the day is coming when you will be exposed and ashamed. Chapter two, verse 19, the final woe. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise the Babylonians speak to gods that don't talk back but the day is coming when God speaks and Babylon will be silent now here's a question I want us to ask as we think through this portion of scripture why is it that God is interfering with Babylon's happiness those, those five verses we just read in all of them every single one of them Babylonians are pursuing their own happiness why is God interfering with that Why not just let them have what they want? Because not all happiness is created equal. Listen, brother, sister, friend, there are pleasures in this world. They're real pleasures. They feel good. They might make you happy, but they will eventually choke you. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 8, verse 14. He's telling a parable of seed that's planted on different soils. And he talks about a seed that is planted among thorns. And the plant begins to grow up, but the thorns choke out the life out of that plant. And Jesus said, the thorns are the pleasures of this world. Did you know, brother, sister, friend, that there are things in this world that might feel very good, but they will choke out your appetite for the things of God. Not all pleasures are created equal. Some pleasures will enslave you. Titus chapter three verse three says that the the believers in Crete were at one time slaves to various passions and pleasures. In 1986, there was a woman who was experiencing such chronic pain. And, that she couldn't couldn't bear with it. She she was so overwhelmed by pain and uh, due to a history of alcohol abuse and drug abuse, she was not able to take normal painkillers. So the doctors in her case decided to install a brain transplant with a single electrode on the pleasure center of her brain. And they gave her a little remote with a button on it that she could push, adjust the currency, push the button, and it would stimulate her brain so that she would feel happy. Maybe you're in the room and you're thinking, "Man, I would like that remote to feel happy just with the push of a button." But some pleasures enslave you. This woman started to feel so good pushing this button that she, her appetite for everything else faded away. She had no interest in her children, no interest in her husband no interest in even her personal needs and basic hygiene until finally her family convinced her to go to a local hospital and get help and they found a very disturbed and distraught woman who was happy when she pushed a button but that was the only thing that brought her any sort of happiness and among other things, they found on her finger a open sore from the place where she continually pressed that button. Dear brother, sister, friend, there are things in this life that may feel good but they will enslave you. God loves you too much to stand idly by while you pursue pleasures that enslave. Some pleasures will fade. In fact, all pleasures but those that are pure and rooted in God will eventually fade. Hebrews 11 verse 25 tells us that Moses chose to be mistreated among God's people rather than to enjoy the fading pleasures of sin. Isn't it interesting? The Bible calls sin pleasurable. Young people in this room, listen to me. Sin will bring pleasure. It's foolish to lie to you. It will. It will bring pleasure. But here's the deal. It will not last If you were to go home this afternoon and after lunch, take a teaspoon and scoop out a spoonful of ice cream, how long will that pleasure remain on your tongue? Not very long until it's dissolved, right? And at that point, it might as well have been sand because it's no longer bringing you the pleasure that it once was. So too are the fleeting pleasures of sin. So, when God tells us, this is what it looks like to follow me, even when the world says, that can't be right, we trust Him because He's wise. We trust that He knows what He's doing. The highway to happiness is trusting that God is good, trusting that God is wise, and finally, trusting that God is enough. Trusting that God is enough. By the time we get to chapter 3, Habakkuk's circumstances have not changed. If anything, they're going to get worse. Yes, God sees the iniquity of Judah, but he's sending the far more evil Babylonians to destroy and exile the people of the southern kingdom. You would think, then, that the book of Habakkuk would end with another lament, Begins with a lament, how long, O Lord? Why, O Lord? But that's not how the book ends. Look at how it ends. We read this earlier, but look again at chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Actually, let's start in verse 16. I hear, he's talking about hearing about God's plans to destroy the southern kingdom and discipline his people. He says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Habakkuk's not feeling well about what's going to happen. And yet, notice what he says in verse 17 though the fig tree should not blossom, What would you put in verse 17? Most of you don't care if the fig tree blossoms or not. Most of you don't have any cattle in the stalls, and you're okay if the olives fail. But what would you put in verse 17? What is it that makes you happy? Your family? Your husband? Your wife? Your children? Your home, your possessions, your sports team, your Netflix account. What is it that makes you happy? Could you echo alongside Habakkuk, though the Amazon cart be empty, yet I will rejoice. Though my husband or wife or children are gone, yet will I rejoice. Though the bank account dips below zero, yet will I rejoice. Though my job is taken away from me, yet will I rejoice. Though I lose my mobility, my health, my speech, my hearing, my sight, yet will I rejoice. How can Habakkuk be happy when everything else is going wrong? The the Buddhist would say to eliminate desire. Stop wanting anything and then you'll be happy. That's not what the Christian says. The Christian says to fight desire with desire. Here's the way C.S. Lewis put it. He says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I can't help but think of the moment when I met my son, Ezekiel. Swinging on a little swing an orphanage in Bogota and how he didn't want us to pick him up and didn't want us to hold him. He didn't want us to get in the van and bring him home. Why? That was all he knew. That world was all he knew. But what awaited him was far better. A mom and a dad and a family and a home. Do you understand, brother, sister, friend? This is what God invites you to. Listen, all these things that bring us temporary happiness in this world are fading away. Don't fight desire by eliminating desire, but look for a greater desire. Looking to Christ looking to him and and saying, you know what? Even if I lose everything else, I have him. I have him. Can you say that, brother, sister, friend? I would suggest to you that that all these little things in life that bring happiness are, are like signs that point the way to true happiness, I want to be careful here because I don't want you to leave here thinking, oh man, I need to cancel Netflix. I need to sell my car. I need to live in a tent. You know, then I'll be really happy because I don't have any stuff that distracts me. No, it's not the point. These are signs that, that point you to the real thing. A great cup of coffee, a bag of pistachios with the nuts already off, you know, you just put them in your mouth. man. Those are signs that are pointing you to true and lasting happiness. Think about it this way, families. You're bringing your your kids to Disney World. And you're in Orlando, and you see the big billboard, Disney World, five miles. Now, do you pull over and hang out by the billboard? Yes, Disney World! I'll tell you what, you're gonna save a lot of money if you do that. (laughs) You're gonna save a lot of money. There won't be any lines. It'll be great. So parents, like that's your Disney World, I know, but the kids, no, that's not Disney World. Right? That's a sign. It's pointing you to the real thing. It exists to show you something better is on the way. Right? So you know, pull over and park at the sign. It points you to the real thing. Now, when you know that, when you know that it's just a sign. On the other hand, you don't look at the sign and say, look at this, look at this ridiculous sign. That's not Disney World. Let's tear it down. Let's burn it. This is ridiculous. This is not Disney World. Disney World's over there. No, you don't do that either. Because what does the sign do? It it exists to point you to fuller and more complete and more lasting joy. And if you're riding down some back road and you don't see a sign, you don't care. Because you're going to the real thing. Guess what? The same thing is true with all the pure temporary pleasures in this life. All of them are but signs pointing you to the real thing marriage, family, entertainment that's that's undefiled, a recliner, the ocean breeze, a sunrise, a loyal dog, the cool, crisp air of fall. All of these things are but signs. You don't park at the sign and say, this is where happiness lies. No, but you don't burn it down either. You enjoy the sign and what it points you to. Every good gift in this life is meant to point you to the one who is the giver of all good things. And even if you don't have those gifts, you still have the giver. The highway to happiness is trusting that God is enough. So let me ask our question that we began with. Was Jesus happy? I want to suggest to you that Jesus was the happiest human being who ever lived. Jesus perfectly trusted God's goodness. Remember in the wilderness... Satan is tempting Jesus. The Father's not providing for you. Look, you can do it. Turn this stone into bread. He's tempting Jesus to doubt the goodness of God. But at every step of the way, Jesus resists because he knows, he trusts that the Father is good. Jesus trusted the wisdom of God perfectly, fully, fully. Picture him there in the garden of Gethsemane on his knees sweating like drops of blood as he says, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will. Yours be done. You're wise, and I trust you. No one, no one better than Jesus trusted fully, perfectly that God was enough. That's why on the cross, as he's dying, he says to his father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Brother, sister, friend, you will only find true, deep, lasting happiness when you look to him. When you look to him. I'm gonna leave you with these words from Jonathan Edwards. He says, Jesus is the highest good of the reasonable creature." The enjoyment of Jesus is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Better than fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of any or all earthly friends. These are but shadows but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Are you happy in God? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are infinitely glorious. That you have given us this world filled with countless pleasures, all of them signposts pointing to you. God, if there's someone in this room that does not know this Jesus, I pray that they would not leave here today before they talk to someone. But what it means to turn from their sin and trust in him and him alone. For we who are your people Help us to look to you. Help us to be able to say alongside Habakkuk, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet we will rejoice in the Lord. We will take joy. We will be happy in the God of our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Just stand and sing with me.